Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a good morning to everybody out there. It's David McLean here. It's published or not. And we have a new voice today. Jan is away. So we have Ewan. Good morning, Ewan. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) That was rather, uh, you know... How would you, loquacious well, of you? I, I, I Anything more surprised. to say? I, I didn't think you were going to throw it to me first. So not, not a worry. But Ewan's going to be helping us out uh, over the coming weeks and months. Um, so welcome aboard, Ewan. Thank you very much, David. Now, do you realise dysfunction is the new normal? Well, I believe so. Uh, perhaps <laughs> did the Simpsons make it that way? Or but anyway, by default, it basically means that. There's no such thing as dysfunction if it's all normal. Now, this may seem an odd statement, but after reading Steph Bowe's Night Swimming, you may have a better appreciation. So, Steph, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Now, I think the best place to start with this novel is with the main character, Kirby Arrow. And just the opening uh, lines there of the novel... Uh, when we're in autumn, by the way. My name is Kirby Arrow. I was named after the most dissenting judge in the history of the High Court of Australia. That says a lot more about my mum than it does about me. I am 17. The name is significant. Yeah, yeah. I was studying um, law while I was writing this book, so... Uh, as you do when you're reading a lot of high court cases, I ended up with a with a favourite high court justice, and I thought it fit really well for for that character to be named. That. Well, it it fits because the name is somewhat androgynous. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the Michael Kirby is the the justice who was the first openly gay uh, high court judge, and I thought that fit the novel because Kirby, the protagonist, is is gay, and also because he's a, a very, um, you know, the great dissenter is very forthright in his opinions. And I think that sort of sums up what Kirby's mum wants for her, for her to be her own person. Yes, and mm. the independent Kirby. So yeah. she is the, the main protagonist yes. going through this novel and therefore we get a sense of, well, at least one of the issues yeah. that we come across. But also then there's a whole array of other issues that emerge yeah. in the characters we meet. We've got the grandfather. What can you tell us about him? Um, well, he has dementia in the novel, and that was inspired by uh, someone in, in my life being diagnosed with dementia. And I think that that's something so many young people go through and so many people go through of, of elderly relatives ageing and dementia on the whole. And I thought that's something that I really wanted to be able to explore, sort of that idea of, of what makes us who we are and, and how we deal with, you know, sort of losing someone when they're still alive. But it's also the cause of friction yeah. with Kirby's mother. Yeah, yeah. Because? Um, her Kirby has a very idealistic view of life and sort of wants all of her family to always be together, whereas her mother's more of a pragmatist and sort of is aware of the fact that her father's her grandfather's going to need care at a certain point. So there's that conflict with her mum. Brought about also by the fact that they're living in the house that the yeah. grandfather built. Yes. And the other piece of information about the grandfather is he was deserted by his grandmother. Yeah. Well, yeah. not by his grandmother, by uh, his wife, yeah. Kirby's grandmother. But then, uh, matching with that, uh, Kirby's mother was deserted? Yeah. Well, I I think something I really wanted to explore was um, this idea of of single parents and of of how we're shaped by having a single parent and sort of the the inherent strength that 
both uh, Kirby's grandfather needed as a single dad and Kirby's mum needed as a single mum and sort of the sort of issues that, that they've had to deal with. Well, this brings me back to the point of the new normal, so mm. to speak, because rather than there being one issue, there's this myriad yeah. of, of issues which is, in fact, quite normal in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think in in literature in general and in fiction, there's sort of this tendency of an idea that there's some default, like, you know, everyone is white and cisgender and heterosexual, whereas in reality, you know, people are combined of so many different intersecting identities and experiences. And part of the problem in society is not fitting the norm, but the norm is arbitrary and artificial. Yeah, yeah. it's just basically some some sort of idea that we have that there is this this normal way of living life when, in fact, there's so many different people living in so many different ways. And I think it's important to reflect that in books for young people. And also, I mean, one of the characters you've got there is Clancy Lee, who uh, likes musicals, uh, is Asian, and uh, has no qualms about putting on a dress if need be or makeup. Yeah. So, but... Clancy's not gay. No. Well, I, I think that I didn't want to write stereotype characters. I think that there's plenty of young people who can have a variety of masculine and feminine interests without that having a relationship with their, their sexual orientation. And I think it's, um, you know, for me to be able to, I, I want to be able to write characters that are sort of unapologetically themselves because I think there's lots of young people who are like that. Mm. Mm. Because we label people. Yeah. And this is part and parcel of why there's so much friction, tension, um, the sort of anxiety Mm. that the young have because they're not fitting the norm. Yeah, exactly. And there's not one way to be a a man. There's not one way to be a woman. There's not one way to be a straight person or a gay person. And I think, you know, I think that we're going in a really good direction with that in terms of people having more freedom to just be themselves rather than fit into these very sort of arbitrary categories. Dare I say, is it because there's a program in schools or there was a program in schools uh, addressing this? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll say no more on yeah. that issue. Um, Iris. Yeah. What can you tell us about Iris? Uh, Iris is the, the love interest in the in the novel and she plays the mandolin and she makes a lot of puns and she's basically the most fabulous thing to come to the, the country town where Kirby and Clancy live. So this really provides the core yeah. of the novel in many ways, that development of uh, intimacy. Yeah. Um, and, okay, uh, Kirby's 17. She's coming to terms then with her own sexuality. Yeah. And so that's the um, basis of the novel in many ways, mm. uh, as that awareness grows and develops. Yeah. Um, but Iris has depression, so there's another issue yeah. that you've got for us. Well, I think that that's sort of trying to represent what is normal in the lives of young people, which mental illness is really common, and also being able to get treatment for mental illness and being able to live a productive life is also really common. So I sort of wanted to you know, represent that as just being a normal part of, of a young person's life. Well, it's more prevalent now yeah. uh, than ever before. I think um, a psychologist told me in the 1960s the average onset age of depression was 40 years or mm. older. Today it's 15 years or younger. Yeah. So there's a lot... Yeah, sorry, you were going to I think we're, we're also sort of having much more awareness of it and also being much more accepting of it. I think there was a lot of... Like in, in olden days... I've also studied psychology. So in olden days, there was a lot of just, you know, someone had a mad aunt or something and a lot of people getting sort of sent away, whereas now it's more... You know, we're more aware of, of catching it early and being able to help people earlier in their lives so that it doesn't turn into a chronic condition. And it's sort of... it People can be much more open about it as well. But there are also 
a lot of other factors that we're realising yeah. that contribute to this. Yeah, absolutely. Because Cyril, the grandfather, is a Vietnam vet. Yes, yeah. That's one... And- yeah. Yeah. So that was something that I, I really wanted to incorporate as well is sort of the reality of Kirby's mum having grown up with a, a father who's had PTSD. Yeah. So adolescents today have mm. so much yeah. to contend with. It's generational trauma. Um, I'm surprised. Well, you, you do actually have mobile phones in there, but yes. the, that's, that's the other thing they've got to contend with, an overload of information. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's, it's quite extraordinary. And so these issues sort of keep compounding. Mm. I was wondering, did you ever have any difficulty balancing them out as a writer? I think as I wrote, I was really focused on the the character of Kirby and the voice of Kirby and sort of writing something in a in a natural way in terms of what what actually would affect her in her life. So I didn't sort of go I've included too many issues because you know, it's not like I was writing an, an issues novel. I was writing, okay, a realistic novel about a teenager growing up and dealing with sort of the confluence of, of different things that, that affect someone when they're on the brink of adulthood and dealing with, with family dramas. And, so and also these adults have yeah. to deal with issues themselves. And what I found, well, one of the things I found interesting was uh, Kirby actually meets up with her father yeah. and addresses this notion, well, why did you leave? I'm trying to work out how someone can be so intelligent and successful, a wife and kids, a PhD, a fancy award and research that helps society to reduce prejudice, and also completely and totally fail to acknowledge his own child. It just doesn't seem like something a good person would do. Mm. Why did you leave, I ask? Mum could never really explain it to me. I don't think she understands it herself. He says something I do not expect at all. Have you seen Star Wars, the old films? I nod, everyone has seen Star Wars, surely. You know the bit where they're in the... I suppose it's like a garbage disposal with the walls closing in and there's some sort of creature in the water and it seems like it's only a matter of time before the walls close in and they're crushed? I've seen it, yeah. That's how I felt, walls closing in. Germans have a word for it, but I I can't think of it. The, the realisation as you age that all sorts of opportunities are closing off. If I had stayed, I was just... It was just going to crush me. And so we're getting a realistic picture from an adult Mm. of some of the pressures they're under as well. Yeah, Yeah. and I I really also, something that is not overtly stated in the book but something that I wanted to touch on is that um, her father is implied to suffer with anxiety and that's something that genetically Kirby suffers with as well. And I think, you know, there's there's a tendency, I think, sometimes in um, fiction to want to create characters that are, you know... uh, very straightforward and sort of all of their attributes make sense and work together whereas in reality there's so many aspects of ourselves that don't work with other aspects of ourselves and and bad things that good people do and and poor decision making and I I didn't want to create a a character who's just a a horrible deadbeat dad I wanted to create someone who seemed real and human and and like someone you would know. And these are the things well adults are fallible. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, And uh, adolescents learn in many ways uh, that Yes, the role models they have aren't necessarily as reliable at times or consistent at times. Mm. Another thing that children have to contend with, I think I'm going to go up and complain to my father about (laughs) all of this. But you also then bring up a whole number of other things. Uh, Literature? Yes. Now, Kirby's into literature, Yeah. very well read, but she's a school dropout. 
Yeah, well, I, I wanted to sort of look at this thing of, of where you're from, sort of dictating how you live your life. And so the fact that she lives in the country and there's no option for her to continue her education unless she leaves home means that even though she's this really intelligent, well-read girl, there's this conflict between her wanting to stay with her family and, and her wanting to improve her prospects. So, yeah, that's that's the reality of it. You're still going to have incredibly intelligent young people who aren't necessarily going to be educated, yeah. And last question before we move to Ewan and his guest, musicals. (laughs) (laughs) They're wanting to put on a musical in the town and they chose Little Shop of Horrors and they've got three people to do it. Yes. What's going on? Uh, I think uh, Clancy is very, very overconfident and incredibly, you know, melodramatic and and has a lot of faith in his abilities to to be able to put on a musical and I thought there's a lot of uh, natural humour there. You wouldn't happen to have a background in being on stage, would you? I was part of amateur youth theatre for a couple of years, but I'm I'm much more of a books person than a than a performing person. So yeah. you'd have to know what it's like to to put on a a musical yeah. to be able to write about it. So the book is Night Swimming. The author Steph Bow, a sort of well a love story, yeah. but adolescent um, with a range of issues that uh, might be uh, reassuring in a way. The overwhelming mm. nature might in fact be reassuring. Yeah. The dysfunction actually might be quite normal. Yeah. So be reassured by that. And it's a text publishing release. Ewan, over to you, sir. Thank you very much, David. <laughs> I'd like to welcome Bruce Pascoe to 3CR and published or not this morning, 20th of April 2017. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning. Thank you for coming all the way from regional Victoria today just to chat with us about your amazing book, Mrs Whitlam, which has been shortlisted for the Children's Book Council of Australia Annual Award. Uh, Congratulations, first of all, on that. Thank you. And I'm amazed at your range. A lot of our listeners will know you from Dark Emu and your non-fiction work, and here you are writing uh, fiction for younger readers. But this is not your first work in young fiction, is it? No, I've um, written a few uh, young adult novels. Uh, Fogger Docks won the Prime Minister's Award in 2013. But I really uh, see myself as an adult novelist. Yeah. Um, but I got into writing non-fiction simply because the, the available histories that were being written in Australia about Australian history never explained my family. So... I found myself being continually frustrated by it and eventually um, thought, well, I'd better do it myself. And, uh, you know, three histories later, that's what's happened. Well, I've got to pick up on that thread before we return to Mrs Whitlam and why you called it Mrs Whitlam. But uh, to explain your family, now your book, Dark Emu, presented uh, compelling evidence that Indigenous Australians were uh, farmers before colonisation. Um, so, I mean, it's uh, been very well accepted around Australia. It won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award in 2016, is it yeah. correct? Yeah. So very well accepted. Uh, with Mrs Whitlam, though, are you making a political point with that title? No. I The original title was Dark Horse because I wrote a, another uh, young adult novel called Seahorse I was trying to be fair to the family. Seahorse was for my son. Dark Horse was going to be for my daughter. But the publisher, uh, Mrs Whitlam, is actually the name of my wife's horse. And uh, the publisher said, no, Mrs Whitlam's too good a name to waste. So 
that it became Mrs Whitlam. Oh, great. Now, you sent me looking to Wikipedia to uh, have a look into Mrs Whitlam's background. And one of the things I didn't realise is that Mrs Whitlam, Mrs Margaret Whitlam, the real-life Mrs uh, Margaret Whitlam, not the real-life or the human one as opposed to the horse one, she was a champion swimmer. Yeah, she had feet like uh, Ian Thorpe. Um, She was a champion swimmer and a champion person. Yeah, and with her champion swimming, uh, did she compete for Australia? She did. Yeah, when Uh, did she compete for Australia? Well... I, I hope you know more about it than I do because oh, I uh, looked up on the uh, she did swim in the Olympic Games as far as I know she was uh, you know a state champion several times over and but an intellect in her own right yeah. in fact Margaret Whitlam was the I uh, wrote the forward for a collection of women's stories that uh, Lynn Howard and myself published uh, way back in the early 90s uh, called the Baby's Wise and Margaret wrote a forward for that, for which we're very grateful. Oh, OK. Did you meet her at the time when she wrote the forward? No. No, OK. But uh, you worked with her work. Yeah. Oh, actually, did you edit her work? I guess you would have. Uh, very lightly. <laughs> very lightly. <laughs> we also published some stories by Patrick White. and you, Wow. You, you got to edit them too. Yes, you well, virtually well, leave them alone. to uh, <laughs> have edited a Nobel laureate's work. Yeah. Well, look, going back to Mrs Whitlam, though, the, the setup. Marnie, she's uh, a young woman in um, a regional area, and how does she come to acquire Mrs. Whitlam? The the horse comes to her because another girl dies, so we go through that whole sense of grief, the un, unbearable grief of losing a child that uh, some people have to deal with, and the mother can't deal with it at all. She certainly doesn't want that horse around anymore. She doesn't want any of the gear around to remind her of her horse's, uh, her daughter's death. Uh, so Marnie gets the horse. And that comes with complications because she's Aboriginal. The town sees the family as losers. How come she's got a horse, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And Marnie has to deal with that. But she's a, a bit of a stoic. My daughter's called Marnie and uh, my, oh. my daughter's one of the most competent people I know. Well, it's interesting you say that that the town sees them as losers because while you're saying that very directly, um, in the book it's much more subtle than that and the points about her Indigenous background I thought were woven in very subtly. Uh, There's a couple of points in the book. Uh, It's only about halfway through that it's confirmed that Marnie is in fact Indigenous. That's Mm -hmm. not really... uh, an issue to begin with, at, uh, but it's confirmed by a teacher at school who uh, Marnie says, well, she, oh, he treated us Aboriginal kids fairly. But then you slip in another point straight after that as well, and I like the way you did that. It's very even-handed. Do you remember that point uh, about the teacher? He, he was fair to us, but... Yeah, he didn't know his history very well. Yeah. And uh, so... And this this has happened. This is what life is like. Like Steph was saying about her characters, uh, what is normal, and life is more subtle than it is crude. Yeah. And so this seemingly good person uh, is also blind to his history. Yeah. That happens a lot. You meet those people all the time, and there you you meet so few people who are really bad. Yeah. That you have to treat everyone. 
um, as if they're going to be good um, because most people want to be good. And, you know, that's the that's why stories become so complicated because people, real people in them, uh, keep on changing the, the call sheet. It's always up in the air as to how they will react, whether, like um, in Steph's book, the father is complicated um, and that's how people are. You might also then fall on the selfish side of his behaviour, but that's more or less human nature. Um, but, yeah, I, I see... Um, I, I hate so few people that, uh, you know, it's inevitable that you're going to say, well, they're a more interesting character like this than they would be if they are all, you know, black and white. So... In creating those three-dimensional characters uh, and building in those contradictions, do you find the story evolves from those contradictions? Yeah, it, um, that's what makes literature, uh, where you're not quite sure what's going to happen because you start building characters and their individuality means that the book is going to go a particular way, which you may not have been uh, fully aware of it when you began. That's the way I like to do it. Other people have got different ways of doing it. So but inside the character, now I've got to ask you, mm. you've written this from the first-person point of view of a, uh, is she teenage or sort of 12 to 15-year-old um, protagonist? And um, you're quite a different character to meet. How did you convincingly, and I found it very convincing, how did you convincingly put yourself in her shoes? Well, that's a, a question I'm... Not thought about a lot, I suppose. I, I, knew, I know my daughter very well, um, and I know how she thinks. So I, it's her, I suppose. So you did that. I mean, you've done it masterfully, and it sounds as though it uh, came quite naturally. Yeah. Some... I, another thing was that I dedicated the book to Gillian Mears, a great Australian writer who died last year, who I miss terribly. Oh, and. Gillian was a horse rider and she wrote that wonderful book, Foals Breed, about a, a woman driving herself and driving herself and asking her horse to do the more and more impossible things and eventually the horse jumps over this uh, jump which a horse should never be asked to jump and the woman falls off and is killed. Oh. Um, and that's Gillian to a T because she was always pushing every envelope there was to push and, you know, she... She scared me, Gillian, because of her... You, you know, some of the things she wrote, some of the things she said were so outrageously courageous that I was always in awe of her. Wow. Um, and when we were editing her stories for Australian Short Stories, which we published for uh, 16, 17 years, um, when I got an envelope with Gillian's name on the back because we were still sending stories by post then, yeah. I was scared because I thought... What's she going to do now, you know? And one time she wrote a, a story about her ex-husband, who I knew, and he was cauterised, that poor man. And, oh. uh, you know, he may have deserved it, but I thought, Jesus, Gillian, you, you've always got the gloves off. Can I ask you, you mentioned she's an accomplished horse rider. Are you an accomplished horse rider as well? No, I can hang on. You can hang on. Um, my, my wife is a terrific horse rider, with a bung knee, which yeah. prevents that happening now. 
uh, but I could hang on. You've got some very telling details in there, making uh, the reader believe the world that Marnie is in. She talks about cinching the girth mm. and the botfly eggs. And I mm. thought, well, I reckon Bruce has got an intimate knowledge of horses. Well, there. that's Mrs Whitlam because every time he went near her with a saddle, she would breathe in and you'd have to wait until she had to breathe out before yeah. you could cinch up the yeah. saddle. And we, we had that horse there, Cape Otway, Bot flies were all over the joint, yeah. and you had to be eternally vigilant for the horse's sake. Now, I don't want to um, give away how this great adventure story turns out, uh, but there is a quality that um, surprised me, that Mrs Whitlam, as a horse, can swim. Mm. And I have never been on a horse when it's swimming, and I actually had to uh, ask a few people I knew about horses, and they said, yeah, some horses like swimming, some mm. don't, but yes, they can swim. Uh, where you live in northeast Victoria, do you uh, take your horses swimming? Uh, well, we were living at Cape Otway at the time, and yes, we. Uh, one of the most joyous occasions of my life was taking all the horses swimming with the whole family and a few mates and just everyone you know, ploughing around in the river. And Mrs Whitlam, because she was part Clyza, had these massive feet. Yeah. So she was a true Mrs Whitlam swimmer. She could go, that girl, and she was well, a so They, they great didn't horse. weigh her down. They were essentially like big flippers to yeah. get her through the water. Yeah. And, of, and you yeah. can hang onto a horse's tail and she'll tow you everywhere. Um, a good horse will let you get on her back and muck around with the face while she's swimming yeah. bad horses won't well that makes the action more compelling it's a wonderful book congratulations mm. on it being shortlist but i do want to see we've got time david indeed just to ask both our guests uh, i'll start with bruce and then throw it back to steph she might want to have a quick think about this because i've forewarned bruce of this i'd like to ask because i ask a lot of authors uh for their take on what makes great writing uh, well i'm an editor too um, when we were reading 120 stories a week for Australian short stories, and the, the really good story, uh, Gillian Mears is a classic example. She wrote a story called The Midnight Shift. It was her first story. We published it in Australian short stories, and that literally pinned me to the back of the chair. Wow. And that's always the case. A story where you think that voice is really different. You know, those characters, are, I believe them. Uh, that situation, I believe it, and I love it. I'm going to read this to the end. Um, it it doesn't not very satisfying. I'm sure a university professor would come up with something a lot more engaging and enlightening and profound. But in fact, all it was for me was um, sitting down, opening the first page, reading the first few parts, and saying. I'm going to read this right through. Oh, I love that turn of phrase, though, uh, pinned you to the back of the chair. Now, I would like to chat more about I, um, I, I your book, a, but we're, we're Steph, running have, out of time. How about you? And I'd like mm. to uh, hear Steph's take on that question. I would say I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think that, for me, it tends to be writing that is really written from someone's heart, and I think things that... Um, might not technically be brilliant or technically be amazing, but that are written from a really true place and that are written either from lived experience or from some sort of emotional thing that then sort of touches the person who reads it so they can really sort of relate to that and that really evokes something within them from their own experience. So it's all about that emotional connection and the, the sort of the truth to the writing rather than any sort of technical aspect. Mm. Yeah, Wonderful. I once Well, I had the difficulty as an English teacher actually having to assess and give a mark to 
uh, student writing. And only on one occasion did I ask a student if she wanted me to mark the essay. It was about the death of her younger Mm. brother in a swimming pool accident. But I said it, it came from the heart and therefore it just went beyond assessment um, and it was so real. And, uh, yeah, that a good piece of writing has a bit of vibrancy to it or a life of its own, and I don't know where that comes from. It's not something you rank on a scoreboard, isn't it? It moves you so much and so deeply. Ewan, congratulations on your first interview. Well, thank you very much, I, David, I, and I, Steph and Bruce for being gentle on me. It went, <laughs> it went very, very well. My guest was Steph Bow, uh, book Night Swimming from Text Publishing, and your... Well, The Wonderful Mrs Whitlam by Bruce Pascoe, and it's published by Magabala Books. And look for it on the Children's Book Council of Australia shortlist for 2017.